to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. Thank you, Brad. We uh, purposely, um, as you can tell, we, you, so some people may not notice this, some people may clearly notice these things, but as we're um, going through um, songs and stuff like that, um, they should kind of line up with what the scripture passage is going to be bringing you to. And so um, we try to do that uh, since we're going through books of the Bible and things like that. And even if we're going through passages where um, it's just a topic, we want those songs to kind of lead our heart to those times. And so if you notice, there's always that gospel theme in that to where wherever we, we could come in extremely joyous and kind of on a, a mountain peak and we've had a wonderful week, but we're still cognizant of the fact that it's Christ, that it's God that has blessed us with those things. It's God's grace that has lifted us to those mountain peaks, right? And so we're still humbled by and needing to look to Jesus in all of those things. If we come in with just a weakness, with a a difficulty, with hardships, with uh, anxiety, fears going on from circumstances, um, our heart should be able to sing those songs crying out like we just sang that song. It's not me, it's Christ in me. It's all through Christ. And so um, whether you're coming in facing um, a great upcoming week or whether you're coming in with lots of stresses um, and anxieties and fears, God is present with us. And we're going to see that this week. And so that main thing that we're going to see this week is that kind of that famous passage that most of you probably have heard before, that my grace is sufficient for you, that my, my power is made perfect in weakness. And in your lowest, weakest times, I'm going to sustain you. And so uh, that's a beautiful blessing. So that's why we sing those songs and, and walk through that. Um, we're going to be in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm just going to look at 1 through 10 this week. So we're kind of finishing up these last three or four weeks of 2 Corinthians. Um, and so the t- t- title for today's message would be, um, When God Forces You to the Floor, Embrace His Satisfying Grace. So when God forces you to the floor, embrace His satisfying grace. Grace. Now that, that that's not that doesn't sell books. That doesn't you know pump people up. That doesn't you know a lot a lot of times sometimes crowds they think that the role of the the preacher or the the, the goal of the service is to um, change our feelings to to get us in here and to kind of fill us up and make us feel good about ourselves and we leave charged and supercharged and we're just ready to go out into the world like and so here but God's word and where Paul has this uh, in this section is that when God's hand takes you and forces you to the ground. And that's what Paul is saying and recognizes. This is God's hand that's done this. this. This isn't an accident. I was reading this morning from Paul Tripp in one of the devotional things, and he, he was talking about um, how we want control, but we're not in control of anything. You're not in control of anything that's going to happen this week. Now, we like to think, right? And, and I'm not saying that there's nothing. So you can plan your schedule, and you've got Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, but guess what? There's going to be surprises, Right? And sometimes it's difficulty, sometimes it's scary things, sometimes it's a phone call that you didn't expect, sometimes it's um, just an illness or a, a call from a loved one. And as you get older, if you have children, then it's like, oh man, at any time it could be some bad news that could get very drastic, right? And so in that, we're not in control of everything that we think that we are. And we can work really hard towards that and to realize that actually God sometimes does things actively, or he definitely always allows. So if, even if difficulty and hard circumstances come, God's allowing that. And Paul's going to show us that you can actually learn about his grace and, and learn to enjoy Christ in the middle of weak times. And so, um, again, that doesn't sell books. That doesn't, uh, you know, people don't really necessarily want to hear that message. But uh, the songs that we sang, that, that line up with that. And so um, that's the reality. So, we, we, I wanted to bring back up as we finish these last couple of weeks, two or three weeks, um, just remember when we started out, um, and let's, let's see how this applies this week. Those two questions that I held before us um, at, several weeks in a row. How can I be captivated by the Jesus of the cross when I'm obsessed with pride and self-seeking and comfort? So 
Let me say it again. How can I be captivated by the Jesus of the cross? And we've talked in this 2 Corinthians book about all the other versions of Jesus, and Paul has talked about maybe you've accepted another Jesus, another spirit, a different gospel. And so, and I'm saying, how can I be captivated by the Jesus of the cross when I'm obsessed with pride and self-seeking and comfort? And so uh, I, I press that to us because I believe that's what Paul's wanting the Corinthians to think through. And man, if there's any other crowd like the Corinthians, Americans, just by in our just our given state, like how much do we seek comfort and 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 those things and just just proud? We're just known throughout the the, the world as being proud individuals, kind of entitled. Um, and the second question. What implications does that truth have on me loving Christ and making him known to others? So if I am a person just unconsciously self-focused, seeking comfort, um, desiring, self-seeking, motivated things and prideful things, how does that affect whether I'm loving and enjoying God and then making him known to others? And so um, some of those themes that Paul has brought out in this book now um, is, first of all, God's paradigm is not our own. God uses weakness in us to show forth his own glory and power. And so remember the Corinthians, very powerful, prideful, and they were kind of changing Jesus to be this powerful leader that has a status and, and popularity and all that. And so and we've kind of said, man, our, our American culture tends to want that version of a Jesus. We're all winners. We're all winners. God would never, if you're following God, nothing bad will happen. Just pray and he'll remove that, that bad situation. Just pray in the name of Jesus. And Paul's going, look at my life. It's been a wreck. Look at Jesus' life. Look at what he told the disciples. So how have we switched the page on that to say, like, no, it's all about just winning, winning, winning. Now, we're in a place where you work hard. We have medicines. We have hospitals. We have health. We have Band-Aids. We have ointment. We have Tylenol, we have surgeons, um, we have comfortable beds, we have air conditioning, we have sound, we have these wonderful comfortable seats, um, all this stuff. So like just you, just where we live, you're not bad or evil, or it doesn't mean you're self-seeking just because you have a job and provide for family. So it's not saying that, that, that we're all evil because of that. No, but it can become such an idol. We'll see that later on, but um, God's paradigm is a little bit different than ours. And then secondly, just that identification with Christ may produce suffering and weakness, which in turn leads to life and salvation for others. So remember when Jesus said that to his disciples, hey, you're going to learn this, that um, unless a kernel falls to the ground and dies, it can't produce, produce much. But once it falls to the ground and dies, and he was shown a picture of himself dying and then resurrecting, look what happens. And then not that we are saviors, not that we're replicating Jesus, not that anything that we do, but he was also saying that to them, saying, you're going to have to die. If anyone's going to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So that's not, you know, like, hey, life trajectory 101 is just everything's about success and your, your ultimate goals and stuff. And so you may set goals and achieve them. And God just blesses that incredibly, whether that's um, health-wise, whether that's prosperity and financial. Um, but just know that God is not obligated to do that just because you're a believer. And so we, we just happen to live in a country where we have a lot of those blessings, and that's incredible. And we want that. that that's good. That's, we just don't want those to become it for us. And we're going to see that with Paul. Um, this was a church that was filled with problems like we've seen. Many of us would have probably passed on that church if we'd have visited Corinthians and some guy started hitting on your wife or some woman started you know, hitting on your husband. You'd be like, I don't think this is the small group we need to go to. And yet God was going, hey, I've got the gospel for them. All the spiritual gifts, you, you could have walked in and kind of got overlooked and like, oh, do you guys have these spiritual gifts? Then, oh, you can sit up here then. Oh, I, I see your clothing. Let's, let's move you to the front. Oh, look at you. Um, hey, if you'll come back here, we've got, we've got some seats reserved for you, for you guys. And so uh, I think all of us would kind of fit in that area. We'd be back in the back where they put the little sheet up or something. And so uh, in that church, all these bad situations, and um, God was going, I didn't turn my back on them. I love them. I've got a plan for them. And not only a plan of survival, but for them to flourish even. And so what a beautiful picture. So let's read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm just, we're going to go 1 through 10. And we'll probably do this week and then finish up next week the rest of chapter 12 and then do two weeks in chapter 13. 
Um, so, uh, if I can get to it. So, chapter 12, 1 through 10. So, Paul says, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would, be, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm actually strong. So, Father, we do not like words like this. We want to stiff-arm words like this. We do not accept weakness. We run in every way from being insulted, from having hardships come. We plan and strategize and work hard to keep all of those lists of things from hitting our life, and yet we see Paul saying, for the sake of Christ, I'm actually content in that. And I've learned to enjoy Christ in those things. And so, God, would you rewire us? Would you rewire us to where our ideas of happiness, our ideas of joy, our ideas of fulfillment and satisfaction would all point to one thing, and that's you? And when difficulties and sufferings come, that you would allow us to enjoy and exalt you in the middle of those things. Sometimes maybe in unchanging circumstances. Sometimes in the middle of very difficult, painful situations. God, would you give us perseverance? And not just perseverance, but would you allow us to enjoy you and still to enjoy and minister to those around us? Those questions that we asked at first, God. Help us not to be comfort-seeking, self-seeking, proud and brutish. Help us to be humble and lowly, and loving, and graceful. Could you do that work in us? In your name we pray. Amen. So, Paul is um, going to go on to details. So, notice he says, first on, he's going to go on to um, details of revelation. So, that's my first kind of big subheading there is these um, details of revelations and visions. Because Paul um, makes it clear that 14 years ago, he could go on and brag about this stuff. So he said, I could be boasting of these things, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to refrain from that. Um, I, I'm going to continue talking about these weaknesses and hardships and suffering and difficulties. Um, it should have, he, the reason that he had laid out all those things, it should have reminded those Corinthians of Christ himself. That's what he was trying to do. My identity with Christ, me being connected in my union with Christ that's what you're seeing. And remember the Corinthians, they looked down on him as obviously a guy who God was not with because of all the sufferings and all the hardships that were on his life. And so we kind of have that mindset sometimes where you, you look at someone going through stuff, and you're like, man, that's like the third or fourth really bad thing that's happened. And sometimes you'll even, sometimes you, some people grow up in church where they're taught, oh, they must be in major, major sin. Well, if they were doing that with the Corinthians, I mean, Paul looked like he was like Satan then, and he was actually the messenger of God, and, and, and the, those false apostles, they were the superstars, right? And that's what he's addressing. He's like, you've, you've not trusted me because of these things that you've evaluated me on and assessed me on, and you're trusting these guys who are, it's all just superficial. 
It's all fake. It's not even of God. And you, you adopted another gospel and another Jesus. And so he's going, I've been marked by one who's denying himself and taking up his cross and following Christ. And these, these false preachers, they've boasted in pride and worldly carnal accolades. And you're falling for it. You're going right along with it. And so Paul now says, I'm going to move from boasting about those afflictions to boasting in some very unique special revelations and visions that God brought to me. And so Paul goes, he's saying, I, I could throw that on the table. Do these false apostles have that? Do they have the revelation and vision where I, where I actually got taken up into the third heaven 14 years ago? So he goes into the details of this, kind of laying that out there, and then he kind of removes it from the table and goes, but I won't even do that. We won't even talk about that. I could, but they don't, they don't have those things, but, but, but that's not what we're doing, right? And then he goes on to say at the end, you know, I, I'm content in my weaknesses instead of me just being content in my revelations and visions and, and special gifts from God. And so he says, I know a man 14 years ago, so let's look at these details. So 14 years previously was around 42 AD. So, so, so you figure, you know, this is just a few years after Christ had um, been resurrected. And so um, this is before Paul's first missionary journey. So um, historically, if you start putting a lot of different scriptures together, there's a period where Paul goes from Antioch up to Damascus, and he goes into the area, I think it's now modern-day Turkey, and there's uh, about a three-and-a-half-year period where they believe that he was probably just uh, alone with God. And so some of the New Testament, since think, think, think through this, you may not have pieced this together before, Paul was not with Jesus on all those trips that those disciples, so you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, I mean, all those guys, so Paul wasn't a part of that. So how does so many of his New Testament letters have knowledge and connect so many times? And so they believe that there's this period where Paul was given clearly, and we know that God spoke to him very directly, and he was kind of this, as he phrased himself, like a, an apostle uh, born at an untimely uh, a space and time compared to the, the original 11 disciples. So they believe that these uh, different times where God clarified, not only this is my servant to the Gentiles, and I'm going to show him and, and share with him how much he must suffer, he had to kind of, kind of, I'm going to catch you up to speed on how this all worked together. So that's what have the book of Romans. Like, oh, that's a lot of weighty stuff. You know, like that's a beautiful thing. That could only come from the mind of God. And so a lot of those things in these letters was some periods there where Paul probably had special revelation from the Lord. And he addresses that. Um, some beautiful stuff. I'd never pieced that together until in seminary. They, you went to like um, the book of Acts and you went to all these places. Like when Paul took takes these trips before his missionary trips, like, oh, he was there for three and a half, four years. And then later on, Paul references being at this place and, and God showed him this. And you're like, oh, Oh, that's a lot. God did that pretty incredibly. And so this is kind of what Paul's talking about. So Paul says, 14 years previously, uh, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows that's not even important. Why did he mention that? Because remember, the, they were into supernatural stuff. The Corinthians love supernatural. Plus, remember, platonic thought, dualism. So you've got spiritual stuff was good. Fleshly stuff was bad. So how could fleshly, earthly, physical enter into the spiritual? So he's like, doesn't even matter. Don't get sidetracked. I know you guys are. But he even just throws that out there. Like, I don't even know. God knows, though. Uh, he says, I was taken up to the third heaven. Now, you have to understand, biblically, uh, through the scriptures, they thought of three heavens. So the first heaven was always just the immediate atmosphere. They had an understanding of the, just our immediate atmosphere that's there. And then the second heaven was when you look up and you see the, the, the stars and, and the sun and the moon. That was the second heaven. And then the third heaven was always referred to um, as God's abode or where God lived. And so when he says, I, 14 years ago, I was taken up to the... To, uh, to the third heaven, I was taken into the presence of God. So like Isaiah and, and those guys. And so that's what the third heaven means there. Um, he says, whether you enter the body, I don't know, out of the body, but I was caught up into paradise. And so uh, remember Jesus references some of the similar things. When he says, well, just, just trust me in this, um, that when you, when you awake after being dead and you're, you're brought up, it's going to be paradise. I'm going to welcome you into my rest, my paradise. Also, Revelation speaks of this paradise. Um, and think about Paul. Even though Paul's a guy who's been through some rough stuff, he had traveled through some of the most beautiful areas of the Mediterranean. So you think about, you know, kind of over in our area, the, the Caribbean, but if you, if you ever see some of those places there around the Mediterranean, it's beautiful, beautiful places. And he says, I was taken up into this place that was paradise. 
Um, he said, I heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And so that doesn't mean that they were unintelligible words. Um, it, it also doesn't mean that uh, Paul was deficient in being able to communicate it. It meant that God had forbidden it, that, that God had said, you're not allowed to share this part. Now, some of that scholars believe, and there's some other reference points to this also, where probably it was where it was personally for Paul, like, hey, it's going to be rough. Like, remember with on the road to Damascus, you get knocked off the horse, bright light comes, Scales on your eyes, oh gosh, I'm a powerful militaristic leader, I'm in charge of everything, control of everything, and now I'm a weak guy laying on the floor, and then, hey, go into this town, and this guy that doesn't know you, who's terrified of you because he's heard of you, he's going to uh, be able to kind of help you with this, and then I'm going to tell you how much you must suffer. So then later on, Paul has these times where God tells him probably and lets him know about some of the sufferings. And so that, that's just a thing that we don't understand. Paul's like, um, it was probably personal stuff. It wasn't going to be fitting necessarily for one of the churches, of Corinth or Galatia or Ephesians or Philippi or Thessalonica, um, or for our churches nowadays. It was more of a personal letter. And so that's why it, it's not there. Um, so he, he could have thrown that stuff out there so all of this stuff, and he's like, I'm not even going to do that. I'm not trying to compare that because I know they, they can't compare with that. I, I was given these special revelations. Um, Paul says, I'm going to refrain so that no one thinks more of me than what he sees or what he hears from me. Think about our own lives. Do you ever catch yourself when you're sitting around, standing around a circle, or you're in a, in a situation, and someone kind of brings something up, and, and you feel like you could throw something out of the table that would kind of be impressive? You could throw something out, and Paul's going, hey, I, I could do that with this. I don't want anyone to think more of me. And remember his context. Believe me, they didn't think more of him. They already viewed him really low, ungodly, weak, pitiful, and almost cursed by God, and Paul's going, I'm not even going to play that card. So think through for us, what if there was a community, an environment where we cared so much more about loving one another, what he's trying to do for the Corinthians, then we refrain, that we refrain from doing anything that might make people think more of me than what they see. Think more about how intelligent you are, how how gifted you are in your ability, not having to impress people with your intelligence or your, your job or your clothes or your car or your righteousness. Sometimes in the church, our righteousness, our biblical stances. We, we know this, my, my list of things that we do and that we don't do. And all of those things, Paul goes, I, I'm, I'm not even going to play that card because I love you. Love is the goal here. What if you created an area like that? where impressing people was hidden. Instead, you would sacrifice for the sake of love, and that's what Paul's trying to get across to them. Paul was not only okay with himself not thinking higher of himself, but for others not thinking more highly of him. Paul would have been completely justified to boast about these revelations and visions, these unique God-given revelations, but he didn't. He said, I'm not even going to do that. When God forces you to the floor, your response should be embracing his satisfying grace. So I don't have to impress you because I've learned the embrace of God. Even going through difficulty, I don't have to throw out for you and impress you with these things because even in my hardships that you look on me and reject me, I've got, I'm embraced by the one person that matters. I've got an audience of one, and that's all that matters. That's hard for us to live in in America. That's hard for us to think through. Um, Paul understood Christianity is not about his own personal gain, nor how impressive his spirituality could be. It was about God himself. He was trying to get the Corinthians who, who esteemed and valued this other thing, trying to get them to see that. So the second thing that I want us to see is that that gift that keeps on giving. If you've seen Christmas Vacation, Uncle Eddie, you know, when, when Clark opens up the, the uh, Jelly of the Year, Jelly of the Month Club, and you know, he's like, that's the gift that keeps on giving, Clark. So like this for Paul, that's the thorn in the flesh, sadly. Like it's not going away. And so notice what Paul says about this. So, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, I could go on and on. 
a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. So this thorn in the flesh, um, it tells us this thorn was actually, uh, he doesn't tell us what this was. Now there are literally books and books and hundreds and thousands of books on what the thorn was. They looked at different things. And so some people believe that when uh, Paul was all strong and powerful, that when the scales hit his eyes uh, on Damascus Road, that then uh, when they got removed, then his eyesight was affected. And some of those things, there's some letters where he talks about this and he kind of says, and if you notice, I'm writing this in my own hand. And they believe that um, that was probably like an indictment about his eyesight that he was, um, as he was writing this, it was probably like large letters and he was doing and they knew maybe he was weak. That's some people's view. Some people think it may have been something, um, you know, just all kinds of different views. The point is he doesn't even tell us about what that is. Um, but notice this, that the thorn was understood as a type of gift from God. Even though it says a messenger from Satan, a messenger of Satan, but God allowed it. So anything that Satan does, remember the story of Job, any even difficulties and even physical harm to our body, it's allowed by God. Now that, that's weird for us. God's sovereignty in that, that that's weird for us. Um, we know it came about also as a, and as a consequence of the vision. Paul's, Paul's making it clear, I didn't have this beforehand, but because of how great this revelation was, I got this messenger of Satan and, and, and he says, it buffeted me, it harassed me. And the word buffet there, uh, the ESV kind of misses it and it says harass me. Um, the picture of the word buffet and some of the other words is, is this idea of these punches, these jabs that just would continually come. And so, and God let him know it's going to be continual. It's not going to be three punches or ten punches and then going to stop. It's going to continue. So any chance that um, what God has allowed to hit your life, is possibly a type of gift that might help you, as Paul says here, cherish and enjoy the sufficient grace of God instead of cherishing the idol self. Sometimes maybe God allows things to come into our lives where we feel like, why is this happening? All these horrible things, and God is using it. God is using it, even though Satan thinks, I'm wanting to destroy this sucker. God's going, I'm going to allow it. And I'm going to turn him to where um, he's worshiping me even in the middle of difficulties. Just like we sang earlier, um, though you slay me. In God's wisdom and goodness to Paul, he gave this ongoing weakness to buffet him. Like I said, it's this idea of these ongoing punches or stabs. It would be ongoing and not removed. Um, Paul said that I asked three times for the Lord to remove it. Now, some, there's some discussion on three times. Was it three specific times? And, and that's not prescribing, like if something happens to you, that you never go more than three, because they're in the Hebrew understanding, anytime they talked about three times, that meant like we continually and kept on and kept on and kept on and kept on. It's like an idea of kind of perfection and like we're keeping on going, we're going to keep going and keep going and keep going. And so um, they don't know if he meant it that way. But note, note this, that it was going to be ongoing, but Jesus said, as it's ongoing, the suffering, my grace is going to be ongoing. It's going to be sufficient time and again, time and again, time and again, time and again. Um, God decided not to, debilit- not to remove it. And note also that Paul had already listed out all those horrible things that he had gone through in chapter 11, all the sufferings, all the beatings, all the accusations, all the horrible shipwrecks, all the, 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 the times he was whipped and all these 195 lashes. And that's a category in one suitcase. And Paul has this one set apart. Notice that, that he has that. So this one must have meant something. Um, along with the beautiful revelations come this, this messenger of Satan. It was allowed by God. Now, we have to be careful in that because what we, we, there's some wrong conclusions that we can get from that. First of all, um, that, that God is not loving if we suffer. Some people begin to think, and this is kind of taught in some churches, that if you're going through suffering, then um, that means that you're out of God's will or that God's not loving you. And so that, that's not the case. This is a clear case. Look at Jesus' life. Look at Paul's life. Um, we don't question God's goodness or love just because we go through suffering. And then secondly, um, if you go through suffering, it doesn't mean necessarily that you're just closer to God or you're more spiritual. So sometimes when we were in the missions bubble, we would kind of get around people and they would kind of like, like almost be trying to self-prophesy that they were going to go into the Middle East and she's going to be so miserable and so miserable. It's going to be like, my wife might get taken and everything, but man, I'm going to love Jesus so much more. And you're like, you don't really want that. I, I can promise you 
hour one, day one of that happening, you're not going to be like, you know, just like thinking. And so what we do is we, we want to, here's spiritual pride. If it happens, that, that's not what God's wanting to do. If it leads to spiritual pride, you've missed it. So be careful with that. You don't want to do self-inflicted things thinking that maybe if I'll just, you know, lash myself, which by the way, there are saints in the past that would do that for hundreds of years and it would start up every two or 300 years where they would literally cut themselves and whip themselves and do these things as trying to take on more suffering for Christ, thinking I'll get closer to God. Man, I, I love my bed. I love air conditioning. I love ice. I love comfort. I love vehicles that don't break down. Like, so I, I don't ask for those things, right? If they hit, I'm probably the first 10 seconds, the first one crying and complaining about it. And so um, just know that you're not more spiritual. Don't, don't let it turn to spiritual pride. Because Christ says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. This is the thing that Paul wanted them to get. In each event, um, his, it was going to be sufficient, ongoing grace from Jesus. Now, here's the deal with us. We don't like that idea. You start going, so again, you think you're in control of the week. Monday stays on schedule. Tuesday stays on schedule. Oh, something happens. Something falls in, hits our life on Tuesday, and, and it's like, wow, this is really bad. And so what do we do? We're like, man, God, you know, we start praying about it. We, we talk to some people about it. Well, then later on that day, something even worse happens. And we're kind of like very quickly, like we're still just like, you know, with a few hours and we're like, okay, God, I think I've learned my lesson. Like uh, Jesus, I've learned this, you know, like, I'm praying about this. I'm not going off the charts. Can you remove this now? Can, can we get over this? I've learned my lesson. Let, let's move on. And so for whatever reason, what, what he's wanting to get across is that ongoing difficulty is going to mean ongoing grace. You're going to continue to need me. You're going to continue to need me. You're going to continue. And so here Paul's saying, this is exactly what he did with me. This thorn that was going to be ongoing, that was not going to be removed. My grace right now and now and now, and we don't want that. We want one time. We want one time. So for ongoing weakness, God wants us to learn Christ's ongoing power. Um, our sojourn mission statement, to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. New job, huge pay raise, new house, um, can, can afford all these things, nice vacation, and we're exalting and enjoying Jesus. That job gets lost two years later, move out of the house, sickness. We're exalting and enjoying Jesus. Oh, no, no. God must, love, God must not love me. God must be mad at me. So do you see, we, we want to exalt and enjoy Jesus in all things, the supremacy of Christ. Why? Paul says here, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so the picture he has there that they understood, that, that the power of Christ may rest upon me, was both the same thing as the Old Testament picture of God with them in the tabernacle. So remember when God tabernacled with his people and hovered with them? That's the picture that he was showing them. Was Remember the Old Testament of that? God hovering over his people? I love the power of Christ resting on me. And then New Testament, Emmanuel, God with us. The, 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 the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I love the power of Christ resting on me. That's the picture there that he, he was painting for them. And so Paul's comparing that saying, that's what we want. So what do you do? What do you tend to turn to as difficulties or pain or suffering hit your life? Um, do you turn to God as the storm hits your life, or, or do you rest in maybe calling a friend? What do you turn to? What do you rest in? Do you rest in and turn to maybe busyness? Some people just start to get busy, and I, I, that way I'll be distracted and not have to think about it. Some people turn to, to gossip or as a comforting help when you've been wronged, and so just gossip and talking about all these things. Anger, sadness, depression, or just some people just numb out. I don't like to feel anger or sadness or depression, so I just want to numb out. So we have all kinds of numbing agents. So what do we turn to when the heat hits your life? Um, Jesus for us said, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul's specifically talking here about um, when weaknesses and, and, and difficulties and struggles hit your life, what about just everyday life? Let's see the same um, truth applied 
just in everyday life. So my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So think through anything that you're angry about this week. What are you frustrated with this morning? About last week? About this upcoming week? What are you dragging in here today that makes you sad or stressed or worried? What, what are you dragging in here that, that makes you feel like that God is not involved, that somehow these circumstances have hit your life and now you're all alone and God is removed from the situation? And Jesus' word to us is, my grace is sufficient for that. You don't have to walk in that. My grace is sufficient. So, okay, so, okay, I'll receive that. Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon at 4, it hits again. I can't believe she did that. I can't believe they did that to us. What are we going to do about that? What are we going to do about this? My grace is sufficient at 4 also. Maybe 11.30 at night, you wake up, my grace is sufficient for you then. So this ongoing grace, um, this is this picture. Paul Tripp talks about this, this progressive ongoing grace. So how does grace work? When Jesus says, my grace is efficient, it's ongoing, continuing grace. Grace goes to work daily, offering to free you from potential slavery. So think through this. How does grace work? My grace is sufficient for you. Grace every day goes to work because we are worshipers by nature. God created us as worshipers and lovers. And so our heart wakes up every day, and we don't, we don't know what's happening, but our heart awakes each day to have a new lover, a new love thing, a new thing that, our, that we would be captivated by and that we want to attach our identity to. And so in that, you're not aware of it. You just get up and you're doing it. And so maybe it's like, you know, you're, you're just taking a shower and you're like, oh gosh, man, I've got to lose some weight. And so that little bitty thing turns into the next thing. You get somewhere and it's, it's maybe, you know, like, you know, you, you get on Pinterest and you see, here's this, this new workout thing. And like, I think I can do that. And now before you know it, by Friday, you're spending like 12 hours researching the food and going and buy the stuff and getting all the, the, the things that you need and then getting the equipment. And then you're spending the, and, and the next, now you, and, and what? Because that was going to bring satisfaction. That was going to bring health. That was going to bring looks. That was going to bring whatever. And it could be, hey, you know what? I'm just tired of, man, I need to look at a new job opportunity. And so you start looking down this thing. And so those are not bad things to become more healthy, to, to find a job that provides for your family. But now if it becomes central, notice what's happening at a heart level. Your heart wants to attach identity to something and find satisfaction in something. Very subtle. It's not a bad thing, right? But now your being wants to attach to that. Here's how grace goes to work. Your heart wakes up and wants to worship, wants to love this new thing. Grace comes after you, ongoing grace, to rescue you from being enslaved to that thing. We, 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 we don't notice. Why, why did God spend so much time in the Old Testament showing Israel getting freed and rescued and going right back to slavery? Getting freed and rescued and going, well, this is okay, but man, I sure did like that back there. Like, what? No, you didn't. We were slaves. That was pitiful. We hated it. I'm going back, though. What's your life been like? Stupid Israelites, right? What do we do? Progressive grace goes, I'm not going to let you do that. I'm coming after you. So even that, that song we sang, um, in, no, no wall he won't kick down. No, no door he won't kick. I forget that. I get the metaphors mixed up a lot. Ongoing grace coming after you going, I'm not going to allow your heart to get attached to that. I'm your greatest treasure. Don't go after these idols. So think through this. We don't realize when we're doing it, when our identity is wanting to attach, to be captivated by something, could be people or possessions, prosperity, security, control, personal achievement, so think through these things. Here's what I mean that we don't realize we're doing it. You may not write this on your wall. It may help you. Um, I just printed out a thing, and it, it just says, you're giving your life to, and just let, put a blank line. 
So every day I have to see that several times a day. Like, so how am I spending my time? You're giving your life to something. So here's some things that, unless you state it out there, my life would be so much better if blank and I were like best friends. Got anybody? Comes to mind? You'd be happier, wouldn't you, if you were with them? Because we're, sometimes we're just adults, and we're still at the, the 12-year-old cafeteria. And, we, you know, like if it's, oh, man, if they were my best friends. Sometimes people grow up, and I know 60- and 70-year-old men are like, this is a wound that happened when you were 13, and it's 50 years later, and you're still dealing with this. My life would be so much better if so-and-so and I were friends. And if that is a dream, then what you start taking action steps to make that happen. I would be so happy if I just had fill in the blank. And you know what you begin to do? You start taking action steps towards that, pursuing that. Life would be so meaningful if I just had more blank in my life. I would finally really feel valued and important if I could just get My life would feel so significant if... So when your heart sets one of those things up as sufficient and satisfying, you begin to align your actions and your time and your life with that. And rescuing grace says, I'm not going to allow you to do that. Rescuing progressive grace, Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. You're not going to find satisfaction. You're not going to find fulfillment. So when Paul's talking about weakness and suffering here, it also applies when our lives and our hearts are just going after things that God knows this is not going to satisfy you. It's not going to bring you what you wanted. But do you see how subtle it is? Whatever that fill in the blank is, it has enslaving potential. I begin to think on that all the time. I begin to strategize how to attain that. I begin to spend time and energy and passion after that. We give our times and our lives to things. Grace goes to work daily coming after you because your heart's wanting to worship something and it wants to keep you and rescue you from being enslaved to another idol. And, and think about it. He's not mad at you for that. It's actually grace and he enjoys you and wants you to enjoy him in that. That's just a loving picture there. Um, so a beautiful picture. It's not just a one-time event when you're saved. So we usually think of grace as when I you know, got saved or when I asked Jesus in my heart. The reality, it's not then, because each day your heart wakes desiring this new love. This work of grace begins upon surrendering your heart to Christ, asking forgiveness for your sins, but includes the ongoing desires for idolatry that you don't even realize are there. He's rescuing you from those things. Um, it's a work of ongoing grace until we die. So um, Paul experienced God's power through this thorn as well as all these circumstances of adversity. He learned to embrace weaknesses that God allowed to hit his life so that the power of Christ might rest on him. He, he understood this is how I'm experiencing God in this. So God may allow those things to hit. He learned when God forces you to the floor, you can embrace satisfying grace, even though sometimes our, our little arms want to reach out and grab a hold of some other thing that, that's lying to us, saying it's satisfying. And so notice in the last thing there, Paul's, the third point is Paul's striking resolve in verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What he means there, I, I, I completely found myself encompassed in Christ. He's, Christ's power is resting upon me. That's when I'm strong. Now, that's not what we're taught. So you may grow up in churches where, like I've told before, um, the, the, the main point of the message is, here's what David did. You need to be, go be stronger. You need to go slay some giants. You need to go do this. You need to, you see the difference there? It's left upon you and how much you can go do instead of, you should be amazed at what God has already done in your place. And if he does anything, even if it is uh, you working hard and doing things, man, that's still just grace. Be amazed by that and grateful for that and just blown away by his grace, especially if you see other situations where people don't have some of those things. Paul had gone through that whole list of boasting, 
And now Paul says that he is content with weakness and sufferings. And why? For the sake of Christ. It's not embracing weakness just to kind of have this, I'm just going to embrace weakness just to be to feel the weakness of it. So it's not that kind of um, self-deprecating type mindset. It's no, but for the sake of Christ, I am allowing myself to go through these things. Um, So think through this. Paul learned a beautiful truth. He was trying to pass on to these Corinthians, as well as our own Christian culture. God doesn't need a people to work for him who are best qualified, who have it all together, who are the spiritual elites, who have the right lists and the right stances, and they check mark every single box perfectly. God doesn't need a people to work for him who are perfect, completely righteous, and holy. Now that may be hitting your face going, I mean, that's not what I heard growing up. It was that we, that we were Christians, we do this, we are this way, we are this way, and we're supposed to be this. Here's the reality, there's no one out there that fits that bill. There's no one who fits that and can live up to that or can be good enough for that. So, biblically speaking, the opposite of legalism is not licentiousness and crazy living. Because remember we talked about prodigal God and the older, older brother types and younger brother types? And so if older brother types struggle with legalism, what, the point of that story is not, hey, stop your list and go live crazily. That, 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 that's not it, Right? That's not the point of the story. So the opposite of legalism is not crazy, licentious living, sinful living. The opposite of legalism is the true holiness and perfect obedience that Jesus lived out for you in your place. You can't live holy enough or be good enough to work for him. It's Christ's imputed righteousness. And if it's not flowing out of that, it turns into spiritual pride. And it's going to fall short. Or it's going to be man-manufactured. And biblically speaking, the opposite of licentious living, those who seem like just carefree and no rules and we don't have to do anything, right? We can just live how we want to. And so the opposite of that is, biblically speaking, is not to become a person with all these extra lists and now adding to the scriptures. No, the point of that is the opposite of licentious living is not legalism. It's the true righteousness that Christ has lived and has given to us and imputed to us. So there are no people. Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ, so recreated in Christ Jesus for good works. So there's these good works that God has created for us to go out and do, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them in Christ, not Church, you've got to go and be better, go and do better. In Christ, the natural thing of us finding ourselves in Christ, Christ's power resting on us, we would act like Christ. We would be Christ-like. So he doesn't need a people to work for him who are perfect and completely holy and righteous simply because there are none that fit that category. That takes the, the pressure off of us. That takes to, to, instead of me always feeling pressure and never meeting up and God's not happy with me, especially when I sin, to I'm enjoying you. What do you want to do with my life? I'm enjoying you. Oh, I see you working over here. I want to be a part of that. That's a complete different mindset. That's a different kind of place. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's crazy thinking. So, The point of Christianity is not, this is for those who take the first step and get saved, and then the next 100,000 steps, proving it. Keeping their list and showing that they're the best ones in the class. Christianity is not um, those who get saved, and it's for the best ones, the perfect ones, the ones who keep it all together. God wants to use them. That's not the message. The point of Christianity is that God's redemptive plan was accomplished by the life and the death and the resurrection and and the the coming return of Jesus that the Spirit is opening people's hearts and minds to, that we all, at the first step, are in need of rescue, and then the next step and the next 100,000 steps are in need of rescue by his rescuing grace, his ongoing sufficient grace. And Paul was going, I'm a man who realizes that. I know my ongoing need is going to be rescued by the sufficient grace of God, not by how good I can do in this. So Paul says, I am content with weaknesses. I don't spend all of my time being 
um, fearful of being exposed as weak. What would that look like for us? Are you devastated at the core of your identity if insults or accusations come? Are, are, are you devastated or overwhelmed when, when hardships hit your life? Are you overwhelmed or devastated if persecutions hit you, whether that's inside the church or outside the church? Paul, Paul's not only saying, I bear through those, but actually I'm, I'm content when those things happen. That's difficult. That's difficult. So the hope in that is not you go be like Paul. It's understanding my, I'm sufficient in that. My grace is sufficient. Let Christ rest on you. His power rest on you. So that's a beautiful thing that he gives us. So as uh, Brad comes up, um, I want you to think through that, what that looks like. Are you a person that, that struggles with some of those things? What did you bring in here today? Is that, is that fears, worries, anxieties? Is it difficulties and hardships that you've gone through or are currently going through that you're afraid of in the future? He's going, I'm going to have grace for you. You don't have to sit and worry and worry and control and control to try to keep those things. They're going to come. They are going to happen to you. But my grace is going to be sufficient for you in that. My grace is sufficient for you not only when the horrible things come, but also in just everyday life. So we have a, a wonderful picture of God's redemptive, ongoing grace for us as we're, we're going through life with that. Um, let me pray as we uh, sing this last song as a response, and then we'll come back up and do the Lord's Supper. Father, um, we are just amazed. Um, again, this type of message is not what we have heard sometimes as Americans. That we're, we're taught from little kids to be more self-sufficient, to be more independent, to be stronger. And we despise things that are lowly and weak. We love things that are powerful and dominant and idolatrous. We um, despise things that are of humility. God, um, your, your kingdom is flipped from our culture doesn't mean that we don't get jobs and that we don't provide for our families and that it doesn't that we don't work hard and that we we don't try to do the best that we can in, in serving you and loving you but God your kingdom is so flipped this idea of grace and we ask for you to help us to understand what that looks like as individuals most of all just starting out our own heart with you just that first relationship God there may be some that are in here father that um, Holy Spirit that 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 are coming in with anxieties and worry and, and hurt and hardships and suffering. Um, I pray, Father, that you would strengthen, remind them that your grace is sufficient, that your power is made perfect in weakness. You allow these things. And when, when your hand forces us to the ground, that we can learn to enjoy and rest in your satisfying grace. Thank you for being you, being in control of that where we don't have to be. Thank you that your love is there with us in the middle of that. You don't leave us or forsake us. Let me pray. Amen.